This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Well, now we are going to continue in the preaching of God's Word in John chapter 17. I want you to open your Bible right there at your home. Have it open on your lap in front of you. We want everybody to see these things for themselves. And so as we begin the preaching of God's Word, would you pray with me? God, you're a holy and righteous God powerful, and in the resurrection of Christ, you've defeated sin, death, and the devil. As we preach and we look at and we look into these glorious things, may our hearts be lifted and may you speak to us. There's a battle always raging for our affections and always uh, taking place over what we will hope in and where our joy will be. And God, we pray that you will set our joy fully on you this morning. For you indeed looked at the cross, you scorned its shame, and it was the joy set before you. And God, you proved your power and showed your victory in the resurrection. And so God, may the cross in this risen Lord Jesus be our joy and our hope and our strength now. May we see the beauty of our risen Lord Jesus interceding for us now as we look at this prayer of Jesus on his last night on earth. We pray and we thank you and we give you, stre- we give you all glory and we ask, I ask God now for strength as I preach these things and your help. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Well, church family, last week we began looking at what's often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. We want to spend a month as we're in our homes as we're facing this global pandemic, looking at what Jesus prayed for us, his people. It's an incredible prayer and really should probably be called the Lord's Prayer, but that title is already taken by another prayer in Matthew 6. The irony of these two prayers here in John 17 and that one in Matthew 6 called the Lord's Prayer is that the Matthew 6 prayer is a prayer model for us, but it's not something that Jesus would have ever prayed. And the key reason I say that is because he tells us in Matthew 6 to ask for forgiveness of sin. The way I learned it when I was a child and memorizing it was to forgive us our trespasses. Maybe you said sins or maybe you said another word. But Jesus would never have had to pray that because he never sinned. He had nothing that he needed to be forgiven for. And that's what makes the cross so scandalous. Because of the idolatry and the sin of every human heart, any other person ever to live could have been hung on that cross. And it would have made sense for any of us to be there to some degree. Every other person deserves sin, but not Jesus. He was the only one who ever lived who didn't deserve to die, who didn't deserve. And that's the irony. That's the scandal. He was the only one that didn't deserve the cross. So titles aside of these prayers, this incredible prayer from Jesus in John 17 is really the one that we should call the prayer of our Lord. In the first five verses 
Jesus prays for the glory of God. And we said that this is what it means to be a Christian, to live for God's glory. The essence of salvation is not sinning less. It's giving all glory to God. And like that, the essence of eternal life is not just a life that goes on forever. It's a certain kind of life. It's life with and life knowing the eternal one. So the first five verses of the prayer are about Jesus. In verse 6, Jesus begins to talk about his followers. Now there's some debate on whether or not he's referring to the men who are with him right there, or he means all the men and women who would come after them and after, follow after Jesus. If you look at this prayer, especially the words coming up, certain phrases could point us either way. But I don't think we need to come to a definitive answer. I think it's safe to say that the immediate context is his 11 disciples, his first 11 disciples. There were 12th, but the 12th disciple, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, he had already left the upper room at this point, all the way back in John 13. And so what I think Jesus has in mind here is first a prayer for his disciples, for these 11 men, and then they're going to take what they have heard and what they have seen from him And they're going to deliver it on to more disciples, to other people, to you and to me. And so that's what he's praying for now. He's asking his father for these things in the lives of first these disciples in front of him. And then he's asking for them to be done in our lives That's how things in the church, in the history of Christianity, and in the gospel message work. It's first delivered to some disciples who know them, who've been shown them, who've received them, and then they deliver them on to other disciples, and that's still the way the word of God goes forward now. It's revealed to some, those people receive it, they glory in it, they take joy in it, and out of their joy they share it with more and more people. And so these things, these words of the Lord are for those first disciples, but they're clearly held out for us today. They're clearly for us now. And so let's read this. John chapter 17, starting in verse 6. I'm going to read all the way till verse 11. I'd invite you to just put your eyes right on your own Bible and see these things for yourself. John 17, starting at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. 
and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Well, that is the word of the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, pay attention. Thanks be to God. I love these intimate words between God the Son and God the Father. Just like the first five verses of this prayer, we get this special glimpse here into the fellowship of love that has existed between the Father and the Son and the Spirit from eternity past more than any other place possibly in the Bible, we hear what Jesus came into the world and he wanted to do as he was in the world and the things that were important to him before he was leaving the world. Now there are plenty of places in the Bible to be sure that Jesus talks about his purpose in coming. But in most of those places, we just get one aspect of his ministry. It says in John 1 that he came to make God known. It says in Luke 4, he came to set captives free. It says in Luke 19, he came to seek and to save the lost. And there are lots of places where he says that, and all of those things are true. But here in John 17, all of those things and more are put together. In the six verses we're working on this morning we see that Jesus came to draw people out of the world and that once he had drawn people out, he does four things with them. First, he reveals their true father to them. Second, he gives them the true word. Third, he sends them out on their true mission. And finally, he says that we'll be kept in his heart. He keeps us in his heart. Again, Jesus reveals the Father, gives the word, sends on mission, and keeps us in his heart. And I realize that last one, keeps us in his heart, is very different from the first three, but that's the point. It's it's actually the point that it's so different from anything else that the enormity of it should almost startle us. We should see a huge difference in that last one. And this, right here, the fact that Jesus keeps his followers in his heart is what makes the message of Christianity, the faith of Christianity, so different than any of the world's religions. Every other belief system either has a founder or a leader or some path that is laid out by its teaching. People are given a set of commands, but every other one has then the world being left on its own, followers being left on their own to see how they would fare, to see how it would all turn out. Every other religion that has a leader is looking at a dead leader. The hope of Easter And what we are saved by, what we are saved to, is that we are saved. We have a Savior who lives. He sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And he will return again. 
Think about that in comparison to every other faith out there. The fact that Jesus keeps us in his heart is so different. Every other religion in the world is led by or governed under a set of teachings where somebody's abandoned their followers, left them alone, and wondered how it's all going to go. But not our Savior. He lives, he reigns, he intercedes, and he will return again, all because he keeps us in his heart. In this very moment, right now, in this instant as you're watching this, Jesus is still doing what he prayed for and what he said he would do in the upper room. He's interceding for us. He's praying for us. And he's preparing to come again. It's amazing. It's amazing to think that right now these words from Jesus, which are about 2,000 years old, are still happening actively. Moment by moment. Incredible. Incredible. So let's get into this. So first, Jesus reveals the Father. The first three parts of this, actually, him revealing the Father, him giving the word, and him sending on mission, all take place in verses 6 through 8. And then the last part, Jesus keeping us in his heart. That's in verse 9 through 11. So look at verse 6 again. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. The word manifest means to make known. That's the first thing Jesus came to do. John 1.18, Jesus came to make known the Father. It says no one has ever seen the Father, but Jesus now has made him known. You, when you see Jesus, you can see the Father, so to speak. This pattern, the pattern that we see here, for God to call a people reveal himself to them, then to give a word, and then to send them on a mission. This is actually not new with Jesus. It's very reminiscent of what God did with a group of people in the Old Testament. I've been reading the book of Exodus during this quarantine, and what you see Jesus saying he came to do is what God used Moses to do with the Israelites and before the Pharaoh of Egypt. This is Exodus 19, just before Moses is going to go up. So the people have already come out of Egypt. They've gone out there before a mountain, and Moses is going to go up to meet with God and receive the law and then deliver it to the people. And this is what it says in Exodus 19. It says, The Lord called to him, Moses, out of the mountain, saying, Thus, you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that was, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, a nationality in Exodus. Jesus is saying that the disciples are going to be the start of not just doing that again, 
but something new, similar to that, but something that goes beyond it. But now it's not just going to be an ethnicity anymore. This is going to be a new kind of holy nation. The Apostle Peter uses that language in his letter, a holy nation again. And this is going to grow beyond national borders or bloodlines. It's no longer just going to be one group in one part of the world, but the people who know God, all those people and who obey his word, they're going to be on mission. And the mission, the vision of God for his glory around all the earth is going to be accomplished now, starting with these men in the upper room, and it's going to spread to all the ends of the earth. And that's what's happened. The gospel is being preached, and the church is rising up all over our globe. And it's because of what Jesus prayed for in the upper room. But there is one key difference between what is being said in John and what happened in the Exodus. And I want to point this out to us. So it's in the the Exodus, God chose a leader and he chose a people from the world. The people were already in the world and Moses was from among them. If we look closely at John 17, we see that the new people of God both have a leader and are chosen as a people outside of the world. They're chosen from out of the world. There's a thinker, he's called a missiologist, he studies the mission of the church, he's dead now. The, his name is Leslie Newbegin. He took an ancient principle from the Greek philosopher Archimedes. Archimedes said, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum or a pivot point on which to place it and I will move the whole world. And what he meant by that was that when it's done right, when there's the right kind of leverage and when there's a fulcrum placed in the right place, you don't need a lot of force to move something massive. You just need to set it up in the right way and apply the right kind of pressure in the right spot. But the key, so the key for Archimedes, and what I'm getting at here, is the key is setting up the fulcrum, the, the thing that it hin- the, the, the rest of this turns on and hinges in, in the right place. And that's the big difference between the Old Testament in, the, in the Exodus and the New Testament and the people of God that Jesus is saying God gave him before the foundation of the world here in verse 6. It says that the people that the Father has given to the Son were given to him outside of the world. Folks, if we're going to see something that moves the world, the best way to do that, the right way to apply that leverage is to find something outside of the world and use it to turn, use it to hinge the world. And and what, what that tells us is we may look small and weak and even insufficient inside of the world, But that's not where we were formed, and it's not where we were set. The people of God were chosen out of the world. And what Jesus means there is we weren't chosen here in this lifetime. We were chosen before the world was created. And the reason that matters 
is because if God could choose you before he made the world, that means that he was able to know you long, long ago. And he didn't just know your name. He didn't just know a couple of things about you. He knew you before the foundation of the world. He knew everything about you, even more than you know about yourself. And if you are in Christ, he still chose you. So it can neither be, the reason that we are saved by God can neither be that we were good enough that we could make ourselves favorable to him, nor can the sins we commit be so egregious that we're made unlovable to him because he chose you before you did anything good and he chose you while he knew everything bad that you would do. And in spite of all of that, he chooses to love you and save you and keep you all the same. That's what Jesus is saying here, is that the people of God all the people that are watching this, that are in Christ, that God knows and loves and who know and love God in return, he chose you before the foundation of the world. Before you were anything, he called you out. And we'll get to this in a minute, but he has a mission for us. He has a purpose for us. When Jesus reveals to us the Father, he reveals to us our true nature and he shows us the family that we're a part of. You were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world if you're in him. And he is your heavenly father. So he reveals that father to us in the work of the father. The second thing that Jesus says he came to do was to give his people the word. Not just any word, but the word the father gave the son Again, in John 1, it calls Jesus the Word, meaning he is the fullness of God's truth, dwelling in God's truth, the Word dwelling in us and with us. Jesus said, says that, that they were the words that God gave him. We received them, and in them we know truth. And so there's a chain to this delivery system. The delivery system is the Father gave the words to the Son, the Son gave the words to His disciples, and throughout the centuries and the millennia, the disciples have handed them down from one to the next. First, they're handed to us in His Word, and that's where we find the foundation of God's Word, but the truth of God is handed from one generation of Christians to the next. That's the delivery system. And delivery is a big deal for us right now. When you're stuck at home, delivery is kind of like our lifeline, isn't it? It's, it's not just something that we get information through. It's kind of the main event. The, the arrival of mail at my house is not just somebody driving up in a truck. It is a big to-do for us. It's, there's cheering and there's mention of it and there's waving. The mail is a big thing, especially, don't even get me started on packages, there's a celebration, there's dancing in the streets at my house when we get a package right now. And so we ask, how is the word of God delivered to people? In one sense, the, the, word, of God, the word of God is from God. We have 66 books in our Bible. 
And they all came from one single author. The Holy Spirit inspired people for centuries to write the, the books that we have of sacred scripture. But, but in another sense, all the books of scripture are products of their authors. They reflect tone and style and the circumstances, the time periods that the authors lived in and that they wrote in. It's one of the reasons that the word of God is able to be so universal. It's not just from one person or written by one group at one time. It works in any culture because it wasn't written in or by or for any one culture in particular. It was written for all people in all cultures. And the reason that God gave the word wasn't just so that it would be received by us and stop there. You see this with how Jesus wanted to deliver it on to his disciples and that they would deliver it on to more and more disciples. If Jesus is praying for these first disciples, it's obvious that he's not only praying for them to know and receive the word, but he's praying for all of his followers to have the word given, delivered to them, and received by them. He doesn't want it to terminate on us either. The flow of the word of God is that it would keep moving, that it would go to more and more people, that it would go to more places, and that it would continue throughout more time. Three things last forever, God, the word of God, and now the souls of men. How are we receiving, handling, and sending the word right now? How are we participating in the delivery chain of the word? In the middle of a global pandemic, what is the church doing and what are Christians doing with the word of God that we have received? We have truth from beyond this world, from outside of this world. Truth that if it's set up and used right, placed on a fulcrum that can move and change the whole world. It might not seem like much to the average eye, but when we realize that these are the very words of God, the creator of the universe, the one who existed before, exists now, and will exist for all time, when that word is delivered to people, what might happen? More than at any point in any of our lifetimes, the world as a whole is ready to hear good news. Many people are searching for things inside of our world. But many, many people will be receptive to good news from outside of our world. And the reason is, people realize that the world is not a friendly place to live in right now. And by that, I certainly don't mean that we shouldn't be friendly to other people, that we shouldn't maintain our sense of community as best as we're able. What I mean is people realize now that we are ill-suited for the world we live in. There is a global fear that we're not right now safe in this world. Now is the perfect time for Christians to say there's a hope outside of this place. Do you know one of my most consistent prayers throughout this pandemic has been for the last couple of weeks? 
like you, I have been praying for researchers and for medicines and for doctors, and I've been praying for a vaccine and for other treatments. But I've been praying diligently that those things would not come at the expense of the glory of God. I fear that the world will find a treatment for this virus and humanity will celebrate not the glory of God and that will praise God, but we'll celebrate our own ingenuity. And we'll be like the people at the Tower of Babel thinking that we have mastered the world and we no longer have need of God. And so I invite you to join me. I'm praying for a cure and I believe that's right and good. We value people in this world. We want God to shed his common grace, to spread his common grace all over the world. But I'm specifically praying for one that would glorify God and make his power known. And even more than any of that, I'm praying that the word of God would go forth. A message of hope and of joy and of peace from outside of this world that would be received by all the people and would turn our world the people inside of this world. So that's second, that Jesus came to teach the word, to give the word. Thirdly, verse 8, we are sent on mission. It says in verse 8 that the word isn't received again so that it will terminate on us. Our mission is to spread the word to more and more people. And, and I fully recognize that this one is more implied in, the, in this prayer than anything else. But I think, it's, I think it's an easy implication to make that we are sent on mission. And there's plenty of places in the scriptures that we could see that the word of God is not meant to terminate on his disciples. Specifically the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples. Jesus says that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So we should go into the world making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. And then he gives us this promise, a promise to cling to as we're on this mission. Things are scary. He says, for surely I am with you until the end of the age. Folks, the age has not ended yet. He is still with us. And so we ask, how are we sent out right now? What's the mission? The world needs reality. It needs truth. It doesn't need pretend platitudes where people are just thinking, if we just keep hoping and have faith in faith and hope and hope, no, we need faith and we need hope, but we don't need them in faith and hope as though they terminate a circular logic that come on themselves. We need faith and hope in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. We need to look at the gospel story. If you look at the gospel story, the first thing you come to on this weekend was Good Friday before we got to this Easter. We tend to want to skip over Good Friday because it's hard and it's brutal and it's bloody and it's grotesque. But the gospel doesn't skip over the cross. We say that the cross was bad. And the world needs reality. Things are dark right now. If you read the gospels, they don't skip over the cross. In fact, 
all of them spend a lot of time on the cross. The focus of most of the Gospels, in fact, is the cross. But every single Gospel also has a word for us. And that is that the death of Jesus is not the final word. Jesus is in heaven right now praying for the church. And this is where we come to this fourth section that's so unlike the first three. He keeps us in his heart. Listen to Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but more than that, who was raised. And here's the promise, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Jesus is in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is speaking to the Father on our behalf. Folks, this pandemic is a spiritual battle. And when I say that, I'm not trying to make some broad statement about where pandemics come from. We can do that another time, and if you want to know that, make a time and we'll talk together about it. But what I'm saying is, When we face trouble, when we are scared, when things are uncertain, when we don't know how it all turns out, we can either trust God or we can trust something else. Did you get that? Those are the two choices. We either trust God or we trust something else. It's either we we put our hope and our faith in God and everything else falls under that, or we're trusting in something else and trying unsuccessfully to fit God in under that. Again, it doesn't mean we don't pray for doctors and we're not praying for a cure. We're not praying for medicine. We're not praying for a vaccine. Look at what Jesus is praying for the church right now. He's praying that just as he and the Father are one, so would the church be one right now. Possibly more than any other time in my life, and I'm guessing in yours, every Christian, every church, every person around the world is focused on the same thing. If the church can't come together now, there's no hope for us. If we can't come together in this, What are we possibly going to come together in? But I believe we can, and I believe we will come together. And the reason is Jesus is right now at the right hand of the Father, continuing to ask that his followers would be made one, continuing to ensure that these things would happen. On the last night of his life, he'll be on the cross in much less than 12 hours. This is what he was praying for. The last night of Jesus' life, he is praying for the church to be one. And so to fulfill Jesus' prayer, to be sent out on mission with this word that we have been given, with this Father that we have known, with this true nature that has been revealed to us of who we are, called out from the world, chosen before its foundation, we have a choice. Will we retreat back within ourselves or will we boldly, creatively in these strange days proclaim the gospel, the hope of Jesus in the midst of the greatest worldwide crisis of our lifetimes. 
people are asking questions that many of them have never asked before. Will we boldly speak into those questions with the proclamation of the gospel or will we shrink back? When people are asking, will death come? Our answer could be, if you know Jesus, no. If you know Jesus, the story of Easter is that death doesn't win. That death has been defeated. That even the worst things in the world because of the resurrection of Jesus will not separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's more Romans 8, just uh, very close to what I read before. And so church, may we take comfort, may we find our joy, and may we be emboldened this Easter to preach the good news of Jesus. For we need good news that is far beyond this world. And Jesus has given it to us. He's brought it to us. And he's done that, not so that we would just keep it for ourselves, but so that we would deliver it on. Delivery is important in our world right now. Let's be deliverers of good news. Let's be bringers of hope. What if we were a people in the next week coming off of this Easter unlike any we've ever experienced before that said we have a message needed now in our world as it's always been needed but in a fresh way when people are asking is death the end we say no death is not the end there is life beyond this life There is a world to come that is glorious and great. There is a Father in heaven who can be your Father who loves you. There is a word that reveals truth to you and you may know it and we want to give it to you. We want you to have it because that's what the word has been meant to do is to spread all over this world. And may God use this pandemic like he used the terrible death of his son, the scandalous murder of his son, may he use that tragedy to bring about his glory and new life. May God do that in this time. May he use this tragedy to bring about his glory and to bring about new life. Wouldn't that be something? Let's pray. God, that is our prayer. We trust you in this most difficult of circumstances. But God, you took the worst thing in the death of your son and you made it the best thing in his resurrection as he is now the first fruits to be raised from the dead and all who believe in him, including us follow after him. Praise be to your name. Amen. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ.
To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.